0: Trader, a podcast where we discuss ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host, Boston.
1: And I'm Jay. This episode, we will be discussing Bamboozled, directed by Spike Lee in 2000. Spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen Bamboozled, pause this episode
0: and watch it. Next episode, we will be covering A Time to Kill by Joel Schumacher. You can drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I'd like to welcome special guests to the program, Dr. Mary Frances Phillips. She's a proud native of Detroit, Michigan. She's a scholar, activist, and public intellectual and currently works as an assistant professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Lehman College City University of New York. Her research areas include the Modern Black Freedom Struggle, Black Women's Studies, and Black Feminism. She was selected as a 2018-2019 to 2019 award recipient for the American Association of University Women Postdoctoral Research, Lee Fellowship. Currently, she is working on her book, Sister Love, Erica Huggins, Spiritual Activisms and the Black Panther Party. This project is the first and only ongoing biography of Huggins. She documents the previously untold story of Huggins' early life and career in the Black Panther Party. The heart of her book excavates Huggins' day-to-day experiences and acts of political dissent during confinement. Dr. Phillips has also published journal articles in Souls, a critical journal of Black politics, culture, and society, the Women's Studies Quarterly, the Western Journal of Black Studies, Spectrum, a journal of Black men, and the Syllabus Journal. Two of her essays have been nominated for the Association of Black Women Historians, Letitia Woods Brown Memorial Journal Award, and outside of the Academy, her essays have been featured in the Huffington Post, Miss Magazine blog, New Black Men in Exile, Color Lines, Vibe Magazine, Black Youth Project, and the African-American Intellectual Society blog. Dr. Phillips has a PhD in African-American studies from Michigan State University, a master's degree in African-American studies from the Ohio State University, and her bachelor's of science in health from Michigan State University. So welcome Dr. Phillips.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Before we get into Bamboozled, Dr. Phillips had some thoughts she wanted to express on uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, especially having us already covered the film and speaking to its accuracy. Dr. Phillips wishes to challenge those, and uh, we're both very excited to hear it.
2: Yes. So, you know, there are few dramatic films that have been done that really interrogate Black power, more particularly the Black Panther Party. Given this, we are starved for stories. Um, films are powerful mediums, in which case it is important to ask if the stories in historical films are consistent with what actually happened in history. Given the racial reckoning of our nation, Judas and the Black Messiah is timely as it introduces younger audiences to the legacy of Fred Hampton and the work of the Black Panther Party. However, the film is not really about Fred Hampton nor the Black Panther Party. It's really about William O'Neill, the informant who served as a pawn for the FBI to infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. The film's masculinized orientation frames the FBI as having a personal vendetta with Fred Hampton as it lets the state off the hook, and it fails to showcase the depth and varied degrees involved in the racist campaign of COINTELPRO. Centering the film on Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers would mean a shift in the point of view from William O'Neill to that of Fred Hampton to offer a fuller picture of Hampton's activism and power in the community, as well as his activism prior to joining the Black Panther Party. For example, he was the youth president of the NAACP. I saw in a recent article in the Los Angeles Times, the director Shaka King has shared that Hollywood was not interested in making a film that really centered um, Fred Hampton. On um, telling Fred Hampton's story through the lens of William O'Neill, and I actually have to quote, he says, I thought that was a brilliant idea, mainly because it's the only way you can get a movie about Fred Hampton or the Black Panther Party through the studio pipeline. And his statement is really telling about the profound racism that's embedded in the Hollywood machine. William O'Neill's character is written with great care as we witness his anxiety, his frustration, his pure crazed behavior that we see at different moments. But that same care is not granted to the representation of Fred Hampton or the Black Panthers at large. The Black Panther Party are often misrepresented as violent criminals. Armed ideology has been romanticized, it's been demonized and reiterated within the context of the Panthers. The violence that people associate with the Black Panthers is misdirected. They were not violent. In fact, this is a misreading of violence. The Black Panthers were actually targets of violence. They were fundamentally about communal care and restoring justice. They provided the Black community with resources, education and tools in which to survive and thrive for the future to come. The Panthers community survival programs only make cameo appearances in Judas and the Black Messiah. We never really see them engaging with the community that they actually served. The film is also missing a lot of context, as it never addresses racial segregation in Chicago, housing discrimination, or the racism of Mayor Daley. Mark Clark, who doesn't make his appearance to the end of the film, as he was the defense captain of the Peoria chapter, um, we don't get no backstory of his life. So like Fred Hampton, he was too active in the NAACP. Um, And it's also important to point out that the film offers a poor accounting of the Rainbow Coalition. There is no backstory on the Young Lords, on the Young Patriots, or how the work they were already doing in the community kind of came together and how that led to their coalition with the Black Panthers. And gender politics, particularly in the Illinois chapter, is alluded to in one line in the film when Fred Hampton checks William O'Neill for disrespecting women. But we really don't get a real look into the gender politics of the Illinois chapter. Fred Hampton's wife, Deborah Johnson, She later changed her name. Her contributions on her own accord are diminished as she's only identified as Fred Hampton's wife. We learn that she is a poet in a film, but we never get to really hear her own poetry through her own words. The poem that is used in a film is one of the actors and it reinscribes the values of a white nuclear family, not the practice of communalism in which Black Panther Party members live collectively and raise their children together in the Black Panther Party. In short, Fred Hampton's wife is dimmed as her work in a breakfast program, her mobilization efforts to fundraise for the Black Panther Party are completely absent. You know, what would it mean to tell this story through Fred Hampton's wife or through any of the other women that were in the Illinois chapter? Lynn French, Yvonne King, Wanda Ross, Diane Dunn, Joan Gray, right? Or many of the other nameless women Um, what would it mean for us to really learn about this history through their lens? It will offer a more deeper nuanced telling and accounting of the Black Panther Party. Patriarchal narratives of protection and submission dominate the public perception of the Black Panther Party. And the significance and power of women is often forgotten, written out of Hollywood, popular cultural representations of the organization as well are really very much steeped in these patriarchal narratives. So in the film, with only two central women characters, we don't get a sense of how critical women were to the operations of the party. This kind of sums up uh, my thoughts of the film. I was really disappointed um, because, you know, it's a missed opportunity for Hollywood to take us further into the history of the Black Panther Party.
1: That was a lot to unpack and fantastically said. I guess a follow-up question I have, though, if any, what were um, some of the components you really uh, appreciated in the film?
2: You know, as far as what I appreciated, I appreciated that the film has stirred some discussion. Right. Right right? It got people curious to learn more. It got people curious to talk with other folks about the Black Panther Party, maybe pick up a book, maybe listen to some podcasts. So it got them interested. It got them curious to really answer some of those gaps that I outlined about the Black Panther Party, to just do a Google, to learn more about Fred Hampton. And so, you know, I I think that's all it is.
0: (laughs) So in undergrad, I studied African-American studies. That was my major. And I think a lot of what you're saying is so correct, is that Black nationalism so often gets lumped in with violence. When it seems to America, Black people are just trying to take care and defend themselves, it looks like or often becomes propagandized as violence towards white people in America or across the world. Yeah. Right? You know, whether it's mm-hmm. in whether it's Algiers, Africa, uh, Asia, anytime a group of people is standing up against colonizers or at least defending themselves against colonizers is perceived as violence. I wonder though, about the technique of using William O'Neill, though. Because it, it, they weren't trying, I think, to do a biopic of Fred Hampton in as much tell a particular point of view. However, they, there have been times, not a lot, like I think about Malcolm X, where they did a complete biopic and that it was extremely successful. Do you think there's something about the Black Panthers that would have made a Malcolm X type movie impossible?
2: So let me start with Spike Lee's Malcolm X. The studio, from my understanding, gave him a hard time. Mm
0: -hmm. Funding.
2: So he had to go so far as to find pockets of money, right? By mega million dollar entertainers to help finance that film.
0: That's very true.
2: You know, I don't get the sense, based on what Shaka King has said in in several interviews, that the studio is interested in making a biopic on Fred Hampton in the same way Spike Lee did. I mean, he basically told us, you know, look, they're only going to make that film is if a person like William O'Neill is at the center of the storytelling, not the actual activist who was doing the kind of in-depth community work that inspired, that mobilized that, in which he was able to coalition with other people to, you know, his work is all about the heart work of the Black Panther Party, right? All of those community survival programs, well over a dozen community survival programs that the Panthers were able to set up to serve their community. You know, they wasn't interested in that. They were interested in telling the story about this Black man who is working for the FBI. And he is killing, working to assassinate another Black man and the Oscars today, and it's probably gonna take over all the awards because Hollywood is very interested in perpetuating these historic stereotypes of Black people as violent, as Black people as um, subhuman.
0: So many times when we talk about slavery, for instance, the natural retort is, well, Black people helped. Do you find that's the kind of thread line that's also present in Judas and the Black Messiah, when we're talking about William O'Neill, like, well, Black people sold themselves. So they're also culpable, as if to say that the rest, the the whole entire slave trade should escape culpability because Black people participated. Do you feel like that's the same kind of through line that they're they're talking about with William O'Neill?
2: Well, I think it's along those lines, but I think that is a problematic positioning to perpetuate in these films, right? Because what's missing is the fact that the state worked to manipulate, to exploit, to trick black folks. So we're missing the full context of how that came to be. That's what I talk about when I'm talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. It comes off like it was a personal vendetta, not that it was part of this Machine, this racist machine, right, that was done to abolish, you know, not just the Panthers, but it was many other organizations that COINTELPO worked to demolish.
1: I totally hear what you're saying with that almost like moralization, making an institutional issue and pivoting it to being a personal issue. Actually, uh, Boots Riley, the director of, sorry to bother you, Critiqued Spike Lee's *Black Klansman* for a similar thing, kind of pivoting the issue of police as more of a few bad apples versus how the history of the institution of police uh, has played out, especially in America. I hear what you're saying, and to go a little bit back on all of the points you were making initially on this film, and and it's not to diminish any of them. I would say that though to include everything that you outlined is also more the role of a documentary, which we are in desperate need of. Or if they did something like, uh, you know, a miniseries on HBO where it wasn't a film. Like, you're correct. There's plenty of scenes where they could have communicated, you know, the complex ideas in which you speak to and which we're deprived of. Uh, in certain moments that are missed opportunities, I'm an optimist to a fault. So part of me is just appreciative of the fact that we finally get a Black Panther film where they're not the villains. Even if, like you say, especially, and I agree with this, that they also gave people an opportunity to maybe come off with a bad reading of the film.
2: Yeah, but it's a film that marginalizes the community work of the Black Panther Party.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: And that's the heart work of the Black Panther Party, you know? That's what makes the Black Panther Party so beloved. That's what makes the Black Panther Party so unique, in that they were about humanity, right? And that's lost. What's lost is this overemphasis on violence, Mm -hmm. on guns. So it perpetuates these same masculinized narratives. And filmmakers make choices. They make intentional choices. Nothing is on accident, you know, when we talk about the entertainment industry. And so I think it's possible to make a film that's just on Fred Hampton. It's about, you know, I see it, it might be similar to what Spike Lee had to do, where you gotta go and you gotta get money and you gotta finance it yourself and you gotta almost fight against the Hollywood machine. Right. To get a proper biopic, because one thing about the film also, it doesn't really showcase the power, the dynamic power of Fred Hampton as well. You know, and I think a film that just focuses on Fred Hampton will have time to build that up more.
1: Yeah, they didn't they didn't humanize him enough like he was almost too perfect. I'm not saying they needed to show flaws, but just like the dimensionality of his character and and the contributions uh, that he made and, and how, you know, like just like what makes the man who's, who is Fred Hampton.
0: I definitely did want to see more of that. It's interesting because as we kind of touch on the Oscar talk, Daniel Kaluuya, he's up for best supporting actor. So when they do that, they deem that category
1: themselves. Like, that's yes. not the Oscars. So I think both Lakeith Stanfield
0: and Daniel Kaluuya uh, identify their role as supporting. I, that's true. However, I would think that if we actually went through and did screen time, like who had more screen time, it was definitely Lakeith Stanfield, William O'Neill's character. Like, I think so. Yeah. I don't think that Fred Hampton appeared all that much in a movie about him. Some of the time he's in jail and you're kind of seeing like these clips of him, of what might be potentially happening to him in prison. But you don't really see, you don't spend a lot of time getting to know Fred Hampton in the movie.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. In a movie about him. Yes. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's not surprising that they're up for these awards because Hollywood does that. You know, they they award Black folks perpetuating these old historic stereotypes. I mean, look at Denzel Washington. He got an Oscar for playing a bad cop in training day. Not for any of his, for example, something like Malcolm X, stellar, right? Mm -hmm. Or Holly Berry getting an Oscar for really portraying a Jezebel, let's be honest, in Mm Monsters Ball. And if you look at the history, of what the Academy chooses to celebrate an award, it's always in line with Black folks portraying, perpetuating some stereotype.
1: I'm not challenging that, but I think it's also important to point out that the Oscars, like the Grammys, have almost always been out of touch. Like they're never on the money of what's interesting and fresh. If it is, the choice is normally obvious, I just think alongside these institutional issues that are perpetuated by these choices you're also just dealing with an academy that's just fucking outdated.
0: I think that's true. I think it's particularly complex when it comes to black people. And I say that because one of the most egregious examples was The Help. Octavia Spencer getting best supporting actress for The Help. And that or or Morgan Freeman and what was that movie that won Driving Miss Daisy? What was the one that won mm-hmm. um it was so Crash. Bad.
1: Crash. Oh
0: God. What a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah. So you know, but the thing that the Oscar does do is it catapults the winner into another stratosphere. And black people can only get to that stratosphere via these stereotypical roles, which is part of the complicated situation that we're talking about. I guess. Absolutely.
2: Yes, it does that for white actors and actresses. Black, you know, entertainers don't get that liberty. You know, Halle Berry has talked about it since I got my award, like (laughs) the kinds of opportunities that she has been given, it has not like increased or expanded greatly because of her Oscar. And when we think about the pay gap and the difference that these black entertainers get versus these white entertainers, I mean, it's all, speaks to institutional racism.
0: Yeah, Holly Berry, Jennifer Hudson, a lot of the Black actresses in particular that ended up getting Oscars don't often have the kinds of careers that you would expect that they would have. I know Denzel won his his first Oscar, Best Supporting Actor in Glory, which is him playing a sleeve. And that did make a difference for him, but he's one of the unique examples of people where he seems kind of now to be above whatever is happening. I don't know, Denzel's in another stratosphere. Well,
1: it's one of those exceptions prove
0: the rule type thing.
2: Denzel has had to create his own lane. Like now he's making all of August Wilson's plays into movies. He's producing that. He's directing that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when we think about the things that he's been offered, a lot of stuff he's been offered is in line with these tropes these racial derogatory tropes as well. So you got to take things into your own hand, which examples of Spike or Denzel, why they, they're doing that work, you know?
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, if we could maybe go into the movie Bamboozled, let's start with, you know, our initial experience with the movie. Dr. Phillips, what was your first experience with Bamboozled?
2: I love Bamboozled. Bamboozled is one of my top five Spike Lee films. As I was re-watching it, I thought about the first time I watched it when I was an undergrad student and kind of coming into my political consciousness, if you will, and what that film did in, you know, reiterating the ways in which Black folks in the entertainment industry are exploited. And Watching that again, more recently, I was able to really see what this does, right? And the critique I think he's trying to make in saying this institution or these stereotypes, these tropes works to our destruction. They're just as dangerous as any lynch mob. And we see that at the end of the film when the Mau Mau does this public execution And then they get killed by the state, right? And so at all angles, Black folks are the one who suffer and are stripped of their humanity, literally and figuratively.
0: I, like Dr. Phillips, saw this movie in undergrad and I remember being moved and upset about it. And then, but watching it again now, I don't know why it just seemed like a deeper, darker movie in 2021 than it did when it was first released. I can't explain it, maybe it's just maturity, but there's something about this movie now that just seems so possible. It wouldn't manifest itself via blackface. That would just be too obvious. But what continues to surprise me is how many people still test the concept of blackface. Even in modern America, like, every other day, I feel like there's some politician... We were having a discussion earlier about the model Tyra Banks, who had experimented with blackface on her show in some kind of strange way. It's just so amazing how it's a concept that is knowingly offensive, but one that just refuses to go away. There was the whole Drake thing, where Drake was in blackface. Like yeah, push it called him out for yeah, it. Yeah, like, there's so many times where it still becomes an, like an ordinary part of the lexicon. People are still having antebellum parties and showing up in blackface in 2021, which is nuts to me. Like yep. the idea that this concept is past, it's not accurate. It's so present. and it's, It just felt so real to me.
1: Yeah, I saw this movie also, I guess, so we all have seen this movie in undergrad. I, I saw it like on IFC in the middle of the night, and I just couldn't take my eyes off it. I came in at like 20 minutes in. And then since then, I've seen the movie Network and just appreciated all of these references and legacy it brought to uh, satire. It's also in my top five Spike Lee films. There is the message and the satire, which I want to get into, of course. But I also want to touch on, just as a film, and like how many boundaries... It pushes and how experimental and how successful it is at doing it you know so i'm watching this movie again for the first time since i don't know like 20 15 years and the way you know because it's shot in digital film but then it's contrasted with when they show the actual minstrel show they produce in 16 millimeter and the way that the music running throughout the music doesn't stop until they do the actual minstrel show when like the movie takes on a different life and how unique it is. I can't think of a movie that's done it this way. Like I've never seen it before. I think it speaks to Spike Lee's Um, willingness to constantly be experimenting with the camera, constantly trying to find new just ways of telling a story. And they don't always land. Like, you know, you and I, Boston, have critiqued like how awkward the ending of um, Jungle Jungle Fever was. But it's exciting to watch. For example, just right in the beginning of the film, I loved how the camera was put on that wood board that they tap dance on mm-hmm. in the beginning and like how that positioned the angle to do the classic Spike Lee walking shot. But uh, I was really taken by this movie
0: on on many levels. I think that Spike Lee put it all on the line here in his, what I call his middle finger to Hollywood. Um, Definitely. Like even telling the story of Blackface, which I didn't know at the time, about how it was burnt corks and really forcing the actors and actresses to go through like it wasn't like they showed up on stage and it was just blackface right they went through the real process like everything was made to actually go through the process seeking out the videos of past performances of people who were in blackface showing them on the screen to show how particularly intricate it is to the DNA of America. In some of the interviews, I can't remember where I heard it, he had asked Disney for the Mickey Mouse in blackface and Disney refused to turn over that part of the film. They didn't want to show the Mickey Mouse in blackface Mm -hmm. cartoon. So it's interesting artistic decisions by Spike.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I really like that he showed that whole process of what it meant to put on Black face, right? As Black folks darkening your already Black skin, widening your lips, right? This exaggerated portrayal of Blackness that was used to support the institution of slavery. You know what I mean? And so when we see him doing that, in the film and playing that out and that he has all of the minstrelsy characters there you can't help but to think about what does that mean in this moment today in 2021
1: well it's yeah it was right. this necessary decision that just revealed the absurdity uh and and the yeah. darkness of the situation and it also shows the human applying this facade i know that based on watching a special features on the criterion edition that uh They did the cork the initial few times that it shot in the film, but they stopped doing it because it actually hurt so much. Like Tommy Davidson was saying that it like physically was abrasive and it just like hurting his skin. It just prevented his skin to breathe. Mm -hmm. And after initially learning to do it that way, they they found a less abrasive version of the makeup so that it wouldn't uh, hurt them. But yeah, they had to go through that almost like ritual to kind of put themselves into this
0: really uh, fucked up space that is blackface. Hmm. What did you think about the Delacroix character?
2: You know, I saw someone who was struggling with his blackness. I saw someone who was struggling to work at a TV studio that was deeply rooted in white supremacy, who would not hear him, not hear his ideas. I mean, he comes up with this idea, this very racist idea that he think is it's not going to go. You know, Michael Rappaport's character is profoundly racist. And then it, you know, it becomes this huge success. And then you see his inner turmoil when it and I love how Spike Lee kind of plays that out with his relationships with the Black memorabilia. I mean, he almost come to life and torture him in so many ways.
0: But Dr. Phillips, Michael Rappaport's character, he has a Black wife and Black children. I don't understand how he could be racist.
2: Oh, he's profoundly racist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is part of, you know, I mean, he tries to use that to say, but Everything he says, everything he does is racist. I mean he he believes that blacks are subhuman. And so you know, while he's trying to subscribe to an idolized version of blackness, I mean, it's it, it's insulting, it's so insulting. I found it interesting that they have Paul Mooney play De la Croix's father mm-hmm. right, right, A very political, comedian, who I love. Oh, by he's, the way. he's fantastic. Um, but if Spike Lee was doing something in that moment. You know, when you see De La Croix's character, you know, who's struggling with his blackness and then his father, you know, so it's a different dynamic going on there as well. And then you see Michael Wappaportis. I mean, he's just
1: woo. going to uh, Paul Mooney's character. I think De La Croix's self-hatred was kind of more of a subconscious mechanism taking place. My reading on the relationship between uh, him and his father was that he saw his father as someone overcome by maybe too much pride, like cutting off his nose to uh, spite his face and never moving beyond Chitlin Circuit and never transcending that space. And he saw his father, I think, also as bitter. Which I think Paul Mooney, you know, expertly plays and probably is very self-aware of. And they're both these flawed individuals trying to transcend
0: this oppression in different ways. The Michael Rappaport character, I think his name was Dimwitty or something like that. Dunwitty. Dunwitty. So recently there was bagel Karen who walks up to the black guy selling bagels and calls him a bitch ass nigger and says she can say that because she has black children. She has mixed children like Michael Rappaport done with you. Like that is such an honest assessment of conservative, deeply racist ideology. Like maybe it's not even Mm -hmm. conservative. Maybe it's liberal too. Maybe it just spans because that idea that because I have a friend or because I'm in a relationship, therefore I can't be offensive towards you is a prominent part of the American experience.
1: Well, I've said this before. It's kind of like when a white guy gets the quote black card. Mm -hmm. The problem with the black card is that it only works with that black person and you have to earn (laughs) your black card with every black person you meet. So it's just this, you know, active hubris that just makes a fool out of the person doing it. Even if the intentions aren't harmful, it perpetuates a load of bullshit.
2: And the idea of the black card in the end of itself, I always have issue with that particular terminology, is profoundly offensive. And it's a way to push aside, almost say, you know, racial oppression is not a real issue. You know, it's this way of reducing racial oppression. So I, I always have issue with that particular kind of language because it's dismissive, you know, and it's something that has been saturated in pop culture you know, that you hear a lot of people use. But this is intentional. This is all white supremacy in action. Well,
1: in my experience with it as a white dude, like it's always been thrown at me as an act of camaraderie or friendship with a black person. It's just saying we're good. We could talk about these things. I see that you respect me. It's like it's almost like an olive branch, so to speak, in terms of my experience with it.
2: Yeah, I get what you're saying. I just wanted to make sure I point that out because I know a lot of people, you know, use that. And I I get that. Um, But but I think it's part of something deeper. You know what I mean? That's that's profoundly problematic. It
1: kind of goes to you have to earn it with each person. It's like to assume that, oh, because one black person is okay with how you discourse doesn't mean that every other black person communicates in the same way. So you just, just like any other individual, you have to come at them and understand and learn uh, what their expectations are and who they are.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let me also say you know, with um, Michael Rappaport's character, just because he has a black wife and black children, you, you still do not know what it means to be black in America. You don't embody blackness. Yes. You know, and so I see it as another way of not taking seriously the issues that affect black and brown people every day.
1: One of the really impressive things about this movie, too, I think, is how Spike Lee still finds way while dealing with um these heavy subject matter uh, to incorporate humor and i think one of the funniest dark circumstances is when mc's search part of the mau mau's is complaining that he didn't get shot uh <laughs> at the end of the film like it's the irony is uh, you know speaks volumes and was such a
0: perfect form of satire. Yeah, no matter how black a white person thinks they are, they're still really far from yeah. being black, yeah. you know, so. Mm-hmm. The complexity of that joke just
1: it lands so well.
2: Yeah, and for me, it was um, Spike Lee's way to show how white privilege plays out. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And it was brilliantly done. It, it was
0: a nice allusion to the ending of Network as well. I'm curious about the difference, I guess, in form. And this is a conversation that, Jay, I know we go back and forth with a lot. So you have Bamboozled and you have the actors within the film. You know, Obviously, it's a movie about blackface and they're playing blackface. And my thinking about that is they are seeing black people in the way that they want to see black people in these exaggerated forms and dancing around performing in a particular way. That is how a lot of white people want to understand black people. When Jay and I go back and forth about Will Smith, although I am trying not to blame Will Smith, he's doing the same thing. I think minus the blackface, he is performing in an exaggerated way that white people understand black people to be that also is not offensive to them. I don't see it that way. And when I say Will Smith, I'll preference it by saying the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the television show. Yeah,
1: I just think like, to me, I feel that, I mean, to put it uh, really flippantly, you're just mad that you're Carlton Banks. But (laughs) I I think that Will Smith was very much being himself. I think, uh, you know, even in his rap music, he was a much more palatable family-friendly version. He didn't curse. At the time, the Fresh Prince Wu-Tang was on the rise and things of that nature, Notorious B.I.G. But I just think that it was part of what made the show interesting was an upper class black family, maybe a little richer or on the same level as the Cosbys, but now contrasting with the more ghetto or the more just urban Philly where he came from. And that contrast, how they both learn from each other. Like one of the reasons I don't see Will Smith as cooning is because I was able to watch that show, one, because my parents were conscious of what I was watching. And my, my mom has like no patience for uh, bad language, but she really did respect and enjoy uh, The Fresh Prince. So I was allowed to watch it. It was kind of an in, like one of my first experiences with hip hop personally was uh, Tommy Boy Records comps where I had like boom, shake, shake the room with uh, Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. So I was very familiar with it and saw it as a portal into appreciating, and understanding the black community. I mean, I attribute the Fresh Prince for getting me into Malcolm X. And, you know, if I was just hearing about Malcolm X through history courses that I took in my uh, public education, I would have thought that he was a black nationalist who was too violent and not as intelligent as Martin Luther King Jr., which is often the pivot that takes place uh, because, you know, MLK is used as a holiday to make sales at at, uh, retail shops. So, there's a lot of um, positivity that I, my experience uh, with the Fresh Prince provided me in terms of uh, getting introduced more to the Black community when I didn't have that opportunity.
2: Well, what I see Boston as saying is, you know, when we think about a show like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, that is one of many examples of Black entertainers being limited to stereotypical roles. And what I hear the conversation is saying is, look, there is a lack of diversity of dramatic nuanced images. And so we are constantly, so when you have these actors in this industry, in this racist industry, you know, they're just trying to survive, they're they're trying to work. And so, They are often perpetuating these historic stereotypes. And that is not to say, like you say, Jay, you know, I learned about Malcolm X or I learned about what have you, you know, but it's still marginalized. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They play up these stereotypes as well.
1: In terms of representation, diversity of roles, like, you know, going back to our Oscar talks and things of that nature, I'm not challenging any of that. We need more. I think that we have made some progress, but I I agree that it is not enough and it's not finished and it's a constant work in progress. But when you critique the sitcom, I think it starts to be more just a critique of sitcoms in general, like pull back from race. If you just look at sitcoms across race, like sitcoms have always been limited, lowest common denominator humor mass appeal, and have almost always, more often than not, I would argue, just to throw a number out there without any research, 80% focused on buffoonery. Now, I also think that sitcoms came probably from the history of like minstrel shows and then vaudeville. Like you look at the Honeymooners and the, I forget the main dude's name, but like he was a complete and utter buffoon. And You know, you look at uh, Homer Simpson in The Simpsons, like a complete idiot, and that's part of its humor. And you look at Big Bang Theory, and it's just kind of like lowest common denominator jokes on what a nerd is. And as like a fellow nerd, I think it misses the mark. And I just don't think that sitcoms have ever been... Known for nuance, with a few exceptions. Uh, I think in the 70s, it started getting darker, which uh, that's not a racist pun. I mean, in tone, although interestingly enough, in the 70s is also when you finally start to again see, since Amos and Andy, black sitcoms like The Jeffersons and Good Times and things like that. So I think it's more a critique of sitcoms. And I do agree that that does perpetuate these issues. But I think it's more to the nature of what a sitcom is.
2: But I don't think you can ever take away race. And if we just think about television shows in and of itself, or we think about you know white television shows, there is still much more diversity of the characters or the kind of characters that are often portrayed in television shows mm-hmm. than there are for Black entertainers and Black TV shows. And so because we live in a system that is very racist, you see that played out in television shows, particularly with Black folks. It's much it's much more diversity with white TV shows. They get to play all kinds of characters. That black folks don't get the liberty to play.
1: And that's totally true. Like, for example, I heard that... Um, have you seen the show Insecure on HBO? I have. Yeah, like uh, Boston and I are particularly big fans of that show. And I forget, I heard this on a podcast. I think it was on How Neil Feel, but... They said that there was a, a man who had a similar idea to the dynamic of Insecure that both incorporates drama and humor and is uh, more transcendent in terms of how those shows operate and was essentially like Insecure, but more with a male main character, not a female one. And they just said, "Now nah, we already got Insecure. And even uh, Dave Chappelle, you know, he dealt with the same thing as he's communicated in his recent stand-up bits with how when he initially went to HBO... With um, The Chappelle Show, which ended up being one of the
0: biggest successes ever, you know, HBO is like, why do we need you? I think also when it comes to the sitcom, and, and we've had this conversation offline, Jay, I've been thinking about writing a book on black fatherhood. So I've been doing a lot of research on fathers. And one of the things that I found was the sitcom is slightly responsible for some of the fatherhood designations that we currently have you begin to see in the 50s and the 60s the strong paternal presence in the sitcom the dick van dyke show even though he's kind of goofy he's still a very serious paternal presence Um the andy griffith show you have those shows where the dad is a very serious presence even though he's goofing off he's a very serious presence in the home like He's not causing the dysfunction of the home. When you start to move into the seventies, eighties and current day, you see where the dad is the nincompoop source of dysfunction, doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And you begin also at that same time where to begin to see people in generally in Western cultures as accepted as the dad is a less serious presence and a less necessary presence in the home. And while I don't think sitcoms are the cause of fatherless homes, it is that thinking that is some of the cause for fatherless homes. So when you see this, the sitcom is just not this tool that exists in a vacuum. There are very intentional decisions that are being made that have an effect on broader society.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And Patricia Hill Collins talks about these images that we often see these historic images as controlling images, right? Because it works as an ideological justification to maintain black oppression. You know, these images that we see of black folks on a small screen and on a big screen is very much directly tied to the racial assaults that happen To black folks every single day, the state oppression, the state violence, the police brutality that we see, like all of these things are directly related.
1: Absolutely. I mean, art is inherently reflective of the world it's in, which then also leads to different roles art often takes. They're conflicting artistic impulses, you know, as we've already made clear. When we see uh, a film, a television show, any of these things, these are all very intentional decisions. And sometimes a show takes on a more aspirational approach, which I would say like Insecure falls into that angle. The Cosby Show did as well. There's often ones that's just, you know, framed as I just want to have a good time. I just want to have fun. I think like Jamie Foxx, when Spike Lee attacked his show that was on uh, UPN along Robert Townsend's The Parenthood, you know, he was just like, we're just having a good time. We're just having a laugh. So that's often buffoonery. And then there's also, you know, the austere, unflinching realism, which depicts something maybe like in Moonlight or in 12 Years a Slave. And I think all of these approaches have merit and have place, but it's more, especially like hearing both of your thoughts, it's this disproportion that needs to be balanced out and understood the same way that we see uh, the multifaceted
0: approaches in uh, the white community. So I often ask myself this question in, in Jay, you often challenge me on this. Am I too sensitive about this kind of stuff? Like, am I, is Tyler Perry, just Tyler Perry. And I need to get over myself and understand that in the lexicon of white drama and comedy, there's like, 10% that's good and 90% that's complete trash, and that same concept or those same numbers are going to exist for Black people as well. Tyler Perry should exist the same way Adam Sandler exists. In essence, and I pose this question to Dr. Phillips, are we just too sensitive?
2: No, we're not too sensitive. I'm very sensitive to these topics. Um, I'm very sensitive when I go to the movie theater or I'm watching a television show, you know, it's things that I assume is always gonna happen when we talk about these racial stereotypes because they always do happen. And so I don't think you're too sensitive at all. I think Tyler Perry knows that he is a black man working in a racist industry and he has to build his own empire. And so, and he's very conscious also of the fact that I have to employ us because no one else is going to employ us. So you see him, you see Spike Lee, you see Denzel Washington being very intentional about putting black folks behind the screen, putting black folks in positions of power to green light projects, you know, because It's certainly not enough of that. I don't think you're too sensitive at all.
1: With Tyler Perry, who Spike Lee was very critical of until recently, they've made peace. You know, the agency, like you said, Dr. Phillips, in which he provides and the space in which he provides people to manifest their own ideas in the black community is fantastic. You know, the other thing is, is like Tyler Perry, outside of how he employs and creates those spaces, I would say represents a portion of the black community that normally is more apolitical it's a part of the community that doesn't necessarily approach things from a uh, institutional or a sociological level. And they normally take on things um, from the moral side, the religious side, you know, and it makes sense because those are components of the human experience that maybe we are in the most control of and how those things are. And it becomes, you know, you, you start getting really easily in the weeds when you start exploring things on an institutional level. You know, these are very big macro problems that manifest in a whole multitude of ways that are very difficult to parse. I mean, it's kind of why we have this podcast. So I think that it's a complicated issue, but I think Tyler Perry, despite maybe Spike Lee's criticisms, is at the very least doing way more
0: uh, good than he is harm. I think his films, by and large, are really bad. You know, I don't like the idea of a black man... Needing to cross dress to be able to make a living, I feel like the backlash he gets for cross dressing
1: to me just comes off as latent homophobia. I don't see it as an issue, and I hear this a lot. Like, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists amongst like uh, black friends of mine who've shared like Hollywood's making him cross dress. Like, I think that was his own choice. I think he uh, he enjoys it. Like, and that's totally fine.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think it speaks to the symptom of the industry being so racist. I mean, that's, that's how I see it. Okay. You know what I mean? And so I see it as the way in which we're marginalized, we're stereotyped. And, you know, we oftentimes have to portray roles that are indeed problematic. So
1: are you saying that the Medea character is problematic? And, and if so, how so?
2: Well, I think Medea is complicated. I think Medea is complicated <laughs> because I do think there are moments where he tries to, you know, give her moments of agency. She is moments where she's talking to other women in her family and she is instilling the teachings of self defense or speaking up for yourself. Or not letting someone just treat you like nothing. But the Medea image in itself, I think, is in line with these old stereotypes and really gets to the same kind of thing, the, the same kind of thing that we have been talking about. But I think it's a reason why he feels like he has to do that because he's in this industry right, mm. that is white supremacy. You get what I'm saying? Yes, I do.
0: Robin Williams does something like that in Mrs. Doubtfire, which is a classic kids movie, but it's done very differently. It's, How is it different? The character of Mrs. Doubtfire was very classy, organized, brought structure to a place that didn't seem as if it had structure. I think that Medea has these tropes But largely is a black man playing a mammy figure, which is very different. It's a difference with more than slight distinction. You know, like, I think it just speaks to white privilege. And it's the trappings
1: of white supremacy, as Dr. Phillips is saying. Like, I just think it's what, despite
0: either party's intent, it's kind of how it plays out. You know, but, but I think, I think structurally it looks a lot like the W.E.B. Du Bois being Spike Lee and Tyler Perry being kind of like Booker T. Washington, like he's kind of learned to survive and thrive off these images and build an institution that employs black people, whereas Spike has made these films and had these opinions, but it's not clear what Spike's physical legacy is going to be after that, where Tyler Perry actually has a studio employs black people on a regular basis, he's built something uniquely black institution that will survive long after him.
2: Well, let me say this, Tyler Perry wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Spike Lee. You know, know, Spike Lee really opened so many doors um, for future Black filmmakers to come behind him. And I think Tyler Perry understands this. And I think he knows this. And I do agree with you when we talk about Mrs. Doubtfire. The difference, it's a huge difference. I agree with Boston on this. There's a huge difference. Mrs. Doubtfire is given a sense of humanity that Medea is not given, right? And it has everything to do to white supremacy. Due to the system, Tyler Perry's Medea is no different from Black actors perpetuating stereotypes because this is all they're given. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Going back to the spaces that Spike Lee's provided, like we just recently covered Tales from the Hood by Rusty Cundeef, and that was produced by Spike Lee's production company. So, you know, he has definitely been creating uh, Black space and has hired Black production and things of that nature. So... Yeah, I think that they're definitely taking entirely different approaches and addressing different parts of black culture, but uh, there are definitely, I would say, in equal ways creating the same amount of space. I guess speaking to the minstrel show in Bamboozled, uh, bringing it back to the film, I-, I found it compelling how Spike Lee in his delivery is rarely a, a nuanced person. I think his messages are very nuanced and his films are as well, but his approach is very intense. And I really loved the attention to detail and the respect he gave to black performers within the minstrel show. In a weird way, the satire and message that is embedded in this film allowed Spike Lee to pay homage to his people's history in a way that also held a critical lens, simultaneous. Like it's a it's a, a tightrope act, but you know, um, highlighting the love of Saving Glover's talents and incorporating him in, into this satire. You know, I think what makes this film as powerful as it is is that he put on an expert minstrel show. Did you guys see see that as well? And what were your thoughts like when when watching these parts of the film?
0: When I first saw it, I think my anger clouded my ability to understand the message that Spike was trying to convey. So I just was angry, right? I was just mad, this thing happened and these people went through this thing and how dare these people. After as watching it as like a fully formed adult, I felt the tragedy of those people. I just really felt heartbroken for the actors, because I know how incredibly talented they were to have to go through that just to be able to perform an art form that you love and how sad that must have been for them and the weight that they must have bared. I remember being an undergrad and they had this World War II, Black World War II veteran who was a cook. And he would say... All day long, they would call him a nigger, they would throw food on him, they would throw piss on him, they would throw shit. That's the white sailors. He was in the Navy, he was a cook in the Navy. And one of the students listening to him talk was saying something like, well, why did you do that? I would have never ever had to do anything like that. And he said, I did that so you don't have to, you know? And and, and the full appreciation for these actors and actresses suffering through these things not even, it's not even 100% clear that it ends up well for them or for, for the future, but they do have a vision that this might make it better for someone else. So those are some of the things that I saw while I was viewing, not only the history, but but what Spike Lee was trying to show me.
2: And I think that's what makes the film so timeless because it gives that inside look on what the exploitation that these Black entertainers endure, what that does to, or what that could potentially do to us as a people. And the minstrel show is with us everywhere. I mean, he critiqued pop culture as well. I love the scene where he calls Tommy Hill figure out.
1: <laughs> yeah. I almost forgot. For his
2: yeah. exploitation. Yeah.
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting, too, with those commercials with both the bomb and the Tommy Hilfiger thing, because like this show, I think, predates Chappelle's show by two years. And it, it was weird watching it again and being like, man, it just felt like the proto Chappelle show in terms of the satire that they brought to the culture at large.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that film, I think it's always going to be relevant, you know, because, you know, I'm repeating this again, but I can't say it enough, how deeply racist our nation is, the entertainment industry is, and how we think about the limited roles um, that Black entertainers are offered. That's what makes the film so timeless. I mean, we see Blackface minstrelsy all the time.
1: When I was watching it, I couldn't help but think about Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent and the way that that thesis of his begs people to be aware of what you take in. I mean, um, William Burroughs also addresses these things in Naked Lunch. We take in so much, especially now hence the maintained relevance of this movie more than ever due to the internet and constantly being connected and carrying these things on our phones, always with us that no matter where you land in terms of your viewpoint and perspective that you bring to the table, if you're not paying attention to your diet of content, you're fucked. Like Spike Lee begs these questions. You can't not walk away from this movie challenging everything you've taken in
0: prior is that kind of like I I, in the boondocks when Huey spends 24 hours watching BET and his mind goes mush do you remember that episode of the boondocks yeah yeah you're like be careful what you take in
2: I also see it as Spike Lee calling a viewer to think critically Mm -hmm. think critically about what you are consuming you know and I teach that to my students I mean I want you to watch whatever you want and you can enjoy whatever you want, but I want you to think critically about what you're watching, right? What are they telling us? What are they trying to tell us? What are they communicating? What are you taking away from it? Don't be some zombie to just take everything at face value. You got to think between the lines, think about what's missing. Think about the gaps, right? Think critically about your watching so you can be informed.
1: Absolutely. On a historical level, I was watching, there's like a the making of this movie. It came out like almost a year after in 2001. And this film critic, his name is Stanley Crouch, uh, a black man. He said minstrelsy was on their way out when the Civil War ended. But when the black people came into it, they revitalized it because they danced extremely well. They were funny and they could sing well. It's as though they came and reinforced the bars of the cage they were in, their talent. And that's the irony of it which then made me think of there's a quote um, by Lewis Hyde who had a thought on irony being irony has only emergency use carried over time. It is the voice of the trapped who have come to enjoy their cage.
0: I like that.
2: I have an issue with Stanley Crouch saying that because he's not taking into account the system and he's blaming the victim, you know what I mean? And so it's not, he's not looking at the full context.
1: I hear that. What's interesting though is when I, when uh, on that same documentary that was the making of thing, Jada Pinkett Smith, her interpretation of the film was that in our modern society, Spike Lee is asking the black community to take responsibility in the decisions that they make, uh, especially now when they have more agency, you know, obviously compared to then. But Spike Lee never forgets, I think, the institutional strictures that these responsibilities exist within.
2: And I guess what I'm doing is I'm pushing back on this idea of, uh, you know, this whole self-responsibility rhetoric, because it doesn't take into account the structures in place, right? The inequities in place and it doesn't take that into account.
1: You can't blame an individual for succeeding along the paths that they're
0: enabled. I kind of think of it like the police situation. Since the Chauvin verdict, I think we've had six unarmed Black people killed by police. And every time I watch the situation, I always say to myself, well, if I was George Floyd, I would have just gotten out the car. Or if I was this, I would have just done this. And if I was this, and eventually, it's like there's no way around it. I would just would have gotten killed. Like this is the the only option really if you think about it was the police, me and death. Yeah. Like there really isn't a lot of options. Yeah. I try to rationalize and and I start to play the politics of respectability with myself by inserting myself into these situations. Yeah, maybe the George Floyd thing wouldn't have happened to me exactly that way, but Philando Castile that probably would have happened to me because he did everything right. And that's what makes the Derek Chauvin verdict remarkably unremarkable, that it took somebody getting lynched on live television for them to realize that this was a problem and they celebrate his verdict. The verdict isn't the thing, it's the system that's creating these monsters. That's why we've had six deaths since then. It has nothing to do with Derek Chauvin himself, or any of those actors at that particular moment.
2: That's right. Consent does not exclude Black people from death. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't matter what we do. Our Black skin is targeted. I mean, you can look at Makia Bryant, who was recently trying to get help and called the police, and she was killed. Mm
1: -hmm. Bamboozled is a critique on media at large, of course, and how these things play out when you have to reckon with the history of racist oppression. And as a Marxist who finds a lot of value in historical materialist perspective, I feel that the biggest change that we need to see for media to start incorporating more positive, proactive narratives is for society to change itself. And to me, we've talked about Boston before, how America just hasn't Um, I do think the questions are finally starting to take shape more than I've seen before, but we're still at the infancy of this where we need to start addressing curriculum when it comes to our history. We need to have more museums and more uh, dedications to the atrocities that have happened in our legacy as a country. The police issue is a whole other can of worms. But until we see dramatic changes start to happen in these institutions, you're going to see the same pitfalls in the media, because although media still has the power to influence and affect us, I think it's more a
0: reflection than it is a cause of our society. So there were three things that happened over the past year that began to shift my racial paradigm. The first is I read Cast by Elizabeth Wilkerson, and I know I I promote it on every podcast, but it's an amazing book. The second is I took a trip to Hawaii. And the third is I recently read Charles Blow's book, The Devil You Know. And in secession, like I understood that from Elizabeth Wilkerson, that black people are perceived as a permanent underclass in a caste system in America. And the amount of heavy lifting, it's going to be able to change that. It feels impossible. The second thing was Hawaii. When I went to Hawaii, I became curious as to why I never met a Hawaiian outside of Hawaii. I know this is completely anecdotal, but I don't think I've ever met somebody from Hawaii in undergrad, grad school, law school, any of my passings. And after reading Charles Blow's book, The Devil You Know, I fully understood that. That's because in Hawaii, the police are Hawaiian. The governor's Hawaiian, the two senators are Hawaiian, and all those people represent Hawaii. So you don't have a whole bunch of police shooting unarmed Hawaiians because the police are themselves Hawaiians. And from the book that I read, The Devil You Know, I think that Charles Blow is onto it in his thesis when he talks about black people needing to congregate around certain states and beginning to take over those state houses in state capitals and begin to rule themselves because I don't ever think that there's a safe place for black people in a white dominated system.
2: I totally agree with that, you know, and this is why I gave the example of Makia Bryant, the young teenager who was killed by the state calling the police to get help. And then she ends up getting killed by the police while he yells blue lives matter, you know, black people are not safe in this country we can't pray we can't walk down the street we can't listen to music we can't our whole being is targeted our humanity is targeted
0: yeah i totally agree with that and charles blow says there's about four or five or six southern states the black people should probably congregate to take over the legislatures and take over the state houses and governorships and really begin to put in policies that are by black people for black people. Because the problem with George Floyd is this, besides Chauvin and the policing system, the problem is that he could live in such abject poverty, surrounded by wealth, and the people that surrounded him didn't care. And the thing that I learned over this past year that really began to shift my racial paradigm is that liberals don't care all that much about what happens to black people. They just don't want black people to be snuffed out on live TV. Doesn't matter that black people live in projects. Doesn't matter that they go to substandard schools or have substandard housing or have higher mortality rates during childbirth. None of these things really matter that much. As long as they don't see it on TV, they're fine with it. So until black people have an amount of aggregate power to be able to affect things for themselves, nobody else is really going to care.
1: I think there's a a couple of things happening alongside that where one of the people who claim to be uh, on the side of black people who are not black, there is a sense of apathy and defeatism that is at the very least understandable. This is a line that was said in Sorry to Bother You, where if you have an issue that you don't have a solution for, your human impulse is to just get used to that reality and stop looking for a solution. So I think a a big part of it is that. And I also think that alongside black leadership of which we need, you need to adopt a critique on capitalism. And you do need to adopt a critique on the concentration of wealth. Because obviously, speaking to a, a choir here, but black people are human and are subject to the same uh, human fallacies that white people have continually perpetuated, which is opportunism, like you've seen in O'Neill. O'Neill's character introduced into Black Messiah and how he sold out his race. Like capitalism provides these opportunists a lot of consequence, and I think if you ignore that and solely keep these critiques on just a level of identity, you will run into other issues. The other thing is that I think one of the biggest things that contributes to allies and a lack of racism on an individual level is interacting with those communities. It's not surprising that, you know, say what you want about the Democratic Party, but let's just say like generally liberal left, no matter how extreme or centrist you are within that, the majority of cities and metropolitan areas vote blue. And I think the main reason that is, is because they're the people that are interacting the most with different groups of people and less likely to fall victim to tribalism, which is obviously at the core of a lot of uh, racist uh, situations.
2: As I was listening to you talk, I was thinking of a host of issues when we think about the difference in, in pay, pay gap. That black folks get paid and white folks get paid when we, you know, and I think I think of restorative justice and how we need systems of restorative justice embedded. I'm for abolishing the police because police do not work in the interests of black and brown people in this country. And we need a conversation about reparations as well, and we need systems in place. You know, I totally agree with you when you talk about capitalism, right? Very much tied to these kind of white supremacist ideas. We need systems in place that work towards equity and work towards justice.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think to that point, those systems have to be created by the people who need them. Like in these blue states, for the most part, you take a state, like New York, which is deeply blue. New York City. New York City, <laughs> but even as a state, New York is a pretty blue state, yeah, relatively speaking. Travel upstate state, far enough, um, man. There's <laughs> not busy. enough, there is not enough conversations about what it would take for black and Latino people to be able to, or, or I should say th- what it would take is gonna come from the grassroots. Those people know what they need they can govern themselves on the city level however they don't control the state houses so and that's where the a large swath of laws and politics come from the, a mayor can only do so much but he's really subjugated to the governor and the state's legislatures who control all those things and i as much as i would like for that to be enough interaction i don't know if people are willing to put their own interests aside enough to promote someone else's to be able to fix the large amount of problems that we have.
1: Under this capitalist system, specifically in America, black people, I think are the canary in the coal mine. And if things get bad enough or dire enough, and I think there's a strong arguments to be made that austerity is only going to get worse. You know, we still don't know what the ramifications of this pandemic are on on all of us, that the hardships in which black people suffer can eventually be everyone else's problems. Black people aren't specifically unique as any other person. They're just fighting to be on the level that white people have. And I think that black people's problems will soon be everybody's problems if they're not already at times. And uh, that's not to flatten power dynamic, but as a way toward empathy in that solving these issues, solving housing crises and uh, revitalizing projects and providing uh, the poor with opportunity and wealth is in everyone's interest and will only add to our progress as people. Well,
2: yeah, black people are trying to fight for their humanity. Yeah. I don't know if you were saying this, but, you know, I would say black people are not trying to be um, white people. When I think of whiteness, whiteness oftentimes falls in line with white supremacy. You know, black people are trying to fight for their humanity. They're trying to fight for justice.
1: Yeah. Different groups create their own unique cultures. So I'm not saying that black people wish to have a white culture, but wish to have the freedom that white culture is founded on that that humanity as you say like if does that does that make sense yeah yeah if we could move from this structural discussion and put more into a few specifics that I kind of started to think of while watching bamboozled I hadn't I had a a conversation a while back with uh, a black friend who we were talking about the Wu-Tang Clan and I was saying how it's one of personally my favorite uh, rap groups I would say that Enter the Thirty Six Chamber is, is just, yeah, it's classic. A, it's a gem of mine. It brought, you know, I think Wu-Tang had a lot to do with bringing out the black nerd and their love of comic books and, uh, and, and kung fu movies and things of that nature, which uh, I definitely connected with and saw myself in. And one of my favorite of the nine Wu-Tang members is Old Dirty Bastard. And his story is truly heartbreaking. And I said to my friend when discussing this that, my love of old dirty bastard is, you know, to put a, 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 an inaccurate number on it, like 20% racist in that I am looking at this sad story and being entertained by it. Now, like I come from in terms of like what type of uh, art and content I am drawn to is more on the darker, more on the unflinching, uh, satirical, uh, abrasive. Uh, music. And like, you know, Older the captures all of that alongside like the funk and stink of James Brown and things of that nature. I think, you know, there's a lot to respect and appreciate about him. But then I thought about that James Baldwin quote that is made at the end of Bamboozled, which is people pay for what they do and still more for what they have allowed themselves to become. And they pay for it very simply by the lives they lead. When Old Dirty Bastard was sent to prison for wearing, I believe it was because he was wearing a bulletproof vest on stage, which is just an absurd reason to go to prison anyways. That's that's a whole, we don't have to talk about prison right now. But the point is when he was in prison, you know, he had this persona that people in prison obviously also knew. And, you know, people would spit in his food and just dehumanize him constantly. And I'm not talking about Like the COs and and the state structures within the prison system, but the actual prisoners themselves were calling him out, testing his credibility and all these types of things. And he, there's like an interview with him. You could watch it on YouTube if you're interested, but it's it's absolutely heartbreaking to see how broken that those experiences uh, were to him. And then in a similar way, and I don't really have to communicate much to this because it's still such a hot topic, but, you know, Kanye West's meltdowns and breakdowns and how social media has just like a vampire sunk his teeth into his own misery and kind of through surrounded by sycophants kind of perpetuated these, um, hardships. So yeah, it's just, you know, I think, uh, alongside these structural issues in which we were talking, uh, bamboozled speaks to these, uh,
0: very sad, uh, personal legacies. Do you think Old Dirty Bastard could exist in 2021?
1: Yeah, I think we have him in like Young Thug. And I think we, like, I think a component, like you wouldn't have Old Dirty Bastard. You wouldn't have Young Thug. You wouldn't have, there's a legacy in which, like
0: JPEG Mafia, there's a legacy in which he operates. So something's fascinating, very different though. It's because Old Dirty Bastard uh, on his album had like a food stamp card with his picture on it. His welfare card, yeah. His welfare card with his picture on it which is so much Conan, I, I don't know. It's it's also
1: a fuck you though, too. Like there's power in subversion as well. And I think on, I think Olderdy Bastard aired more on that, listen, I'm not saying you're wrong. And like Dr. Phillips has said prior in this podcast, everyone's allowed to take in and experience the content in which they do, but they should be aware of what's going on, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I, I you know, I would agree that ODB is critiquing the system. He's critiquing that system by putting this welfare card on the front cover, on his album cover, right? Because the history of the welfare system is one of exploitation, is one of violence, is one of abuse, where Black folks are dehumanized. And so he's speaking back.
1: Yeah. And in a similar way, JPEG Mafia, who's... You know, at this point, like hip hop has become so niche that there's now a much more vibrant underground than there ever was. And JPEG Mafia kind of exists in that silo. And on his album that came out in 2017 called Veteran, he's, you know, he's a, he is a veteran. He put his veteran card as a tribute to Old Dirty
0: Bastard and also highlighting a whole other issue, which I thought was really profound. This is a question that I'm going to ask Dr. Phillips because I'm still wrestling with it in my own head. I guess the question is, when does the politics of respectability become accusatory of cooning and buffooning? Or what is that line? Yeah. You know, like, and I find myself struggling with it all the time. You know, like there is soul playing, which is cooning and buffooning. But am I am I playing the politics of respectability by saying that?
1: And to add to that, when is it cooning and buffooning? And when is it Black people being proud of their own culture and having fun.
2: Um, okay, so I'm trying to understand a question. <laughs> so are you asking me, how does the politics of respectability play into historic stereotypes of cooning and buffooning?
0: Yes and no. So as a person who, who's pretty sensitive about the way the media portrays Black people, like Sometimes I see things and I'm like, that's cooning and buffooning. But somebody might say, well, you're just playing the politics of respectability. You just want black people to always appear a certain way. Black people have a diverse thought process and they should be allowed to put anything that they want out.
1: And to provide an actual example to communicate, I think, what Boston saying that we've had a discussion on. Boston was on record initially saying by thinking Tiffany Haddish just isn't funny. Then Boston saw Tiffany Haddish in Bad Trip and saw the wonder that I would argue is Tiffany Haddish. I was always on the side of Tiffany Haddish being funny. I just think she has a lot of charisma and presence in her humor. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Boston, but that's a good illustration of
0: where these thoughts come from. Yeah. Like, so the girl's trip was the first time that I really saw Tiffany Haddish and I thought she was just really crass, unfunny, and coonin and buffooning, right? I thought that's kind of what she was doing. And I see bad trip and I said, okay, she's funny. She's delivering some lines. She's getting into her character, even though her character is kind of strange. When does the line of politics of respectability kind of cross into, is too critical, I guess, of the coonin and buffooning and not allowing black people enough chance to experiment with who they are?
2: Okay, so so let me say this, Boston, your critique, I think is a fair one, but know that these actors are working in a system that does not see black humanity, mm-hmm. right? right? And so they're not allowed a range of diverse characters to portray on film. They're not given the liberty to create the kinds of characters that brings that kind of humanity because of the system that they work in. Those are my thoughts when I hear you say that. I think it's okay to say, look, this particular image is problematic because what I see there is a buffoon, but it's a reason why you see a buffoon there because of the system of Black entertainment that doesn't value Black life. But I
1: guess my challenge to that, Dr. Phillips, is are you saying that black people should never take on buffoonery as an approach to comedy, or it's just that the harsh reality that institutionalized racism creates is that it's always going to be this complicated issue in which we're speaking to.
2: I'm saying black entertainers are taking what they are given because they're trying to eat. They're trying to survive. They're trying to thrive. Oftentimes, That means that they may have to portray, you know, if it's the image of the buffoon or the image of the mammy, like we talked about in The Help, or if it's a Jezebel, you know, we can we can name all of these tropes that we see all the time. We see them in commercials. We see them in billboards. Black entertainers are trying to eat in a system that's profoundly racist. That's what I'm saying. They don't have a choice. They're not given diverse characters, nuanced, dramatic roles to play. They, they don't have that liberty because of racism. That's what I'm saying.
0: That actually helped me answer the question because it's not the actors, it's the system. And what bothered me about the Tiffany Haddish portrayal in Girls Trip was you have a counter character. I don't know if anybody watched Sex in the City. Samantha from Sex in the City, very open, very sexual always had a bunch of different partners, but she was a three dimensional character. That's not all she was. You know, she was a successful PR person who was portrayed as a woman who was in control of her sexuality. Her sexuality wasn't in control of her. How with Tiffany Haddish, it seemed like she was just like a dog off the leash who was one dimensional and didn't have the complex, ideas that she was bringing to her sexuality you know and i think when black people are portrayed as one-dimensional figures that's when i think that light is going off like minstrelsy cooning and buffooning and it's hard for hollywood to get those three or four-dimensional characters of black people correct because i don't necessarily know if the mainstream audiences in america want to see a multi-dimensional black character
1: the main message I think Bamboozle communicating is to be aware and discuss and critique what you are taking in. One of the th- reasons I believe that I had a different take on a Tiffany Haddish thing uh, earlier than you did before seeing Bad Trip is I heard her hour plus long interview on the Champs, which uh, Neil Brennan and Moshe Kasher ask her about her story and how she started and the amount of of trauma and pain she overcame. It's a heartbreaking story, but it you know, it provides a dimension in which you speak. I highly recommend anyone who's curious to listen to it. You know, so I I had that going in. Like I sensed her charisma and what she was putting into it.
2: I think your your struggle, Boston, is black folks aren't given three-dimensional care. And that's part of the critique that Spike is saying, that I'm saying that we are unpacking in this discussion. When you compare these black entertainers to these white entertainers, you see a huge difference. You see more roles, you see more nuanced characters that you you don't see black entertainers getting the opportunity to per- portray. And so, Tiffany Haddish is a great example of that. Just the limited availability, you know that that's in the industry It's problematic.
1: Any questions for us? Anything you wanted to comment on the movie?
2: No, I think this has been a really rich discussion and an important discussion to have with the Oscars happening later today.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. Early on in the podcast, we ended up cutting it out because I don't think my ideas weren't uh, fully formed yet in having this. But there was that initiative with the Oscars, like it was like a, a type of quota thing that movies would not be considered for the academies if they didn't meet a certain quota of inclusion of minorities. And they had the whole list of various levels of oppression. And, you know, it was like a checkbox uh, type of issue. And my critique was, you know, I'm a graphic designer and a a fine artist. and, And as an artist myself, I feel like this initiative while it may have good intent sounds like a very um white liberal solution to a problem that's really not going to uh, resolve much whereas in if you if you required this quota to be put on creators of film and people behind the scenes which i would assume without doing much research on it that there's much more of a disparity in you would inevitably create more authentic and better representations of these communities where there is a drought.
2: You know, these quotas don't mean nothing if Black folks have to subscribe to playing problematic images, you know, in TV and film.
1: Yeah. Like, why not apply the quota to the creators themselves? Give the creators due, because like the success of a movie like Get Out or of a show like Insecure... These are uh, products that are created by the voices that are being discussed. And I just think that's a much more proactive way of addressing this issue than is putting the quota on the actors.
2: Yeah. And even with that, you don't have enough black folks behind the scenes, you know, green light in certain projects. You don't have enough black folks in positions of power in the entertainment industry, And so I don't know what these quotas are doing, you know, because it's not translating to any real social change in the Hollywood industry. I think
0: my initial response was to be supportive of them. My thing was, is getting black people into those spaces um, and to be considered for those spaces is incredibly important. But at the same time, like as as I'm flushing out these ideas and even through this podcast, I'm thinking about well, if you're just going to have a one dimensional black character that's going to be working at the the, uh, coffee shop, what difference does it make? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, like, it's it's, you want black people to work and you want them to be in positions. um, But at the same time, you know, I don't know what actual end you're serving by having these things put in place. So I'm torn. What are your initial thoughts on the Oscar nominations, Dr. Phillips?
2: These films that I see, I also see United States versus Billy Holiday. Mm-hmm. My Rainey's Black Bottom is an August Wilson play. which I think is a wonderful play. I do think My Rainey needs to be more centered in the story <laughs> um, sure. of that one. Um, Billie Holiday, I see as very similar to um, Judas and the Black Messiah, and that it's a lot of focus on the role of the state and is less focused on Billie Holiday's life story and just her relationship with the state around the song, Strange Fruit. Right. So I think this, the, in much of these films, you know, even One Night in Miami, we're missing some context in that film.
1: Assuming you've seen it, what were your thoughts of the representation of the Black Panther Party in the trial of Chicago 7? Yeah, in the trial of Chicago 7.
2: I didn't think it was well done at all. I think it's missing a lot of context from what I remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it wasn't a lot on... The community work of the Black Panther Party—it's just very surface, you know. Yeah, it was very surface. In, that in some ways.
0: What was the name of the Black Panther who was who was Bobby Seale? Bobby Seale. I didn't realize that he had been bound and gagged for a number of mm-hmm. days.
1: Yeah, that, I don't know why the, it's such a weird fact to misrepresent. Where, like in the movie, it was depicted as like a half an hour to an hour, maybe, and it was days. Which is such a significant thing. and in terms of ability to communicate it accurately on film within the strictures the narrative created, there was no
0: reason to change that fact. It was very frustrating, no, I understand the perfect reason to change it because well, no good reason. good well, no good reason. <laughs> well, there was a there was a reason because it took away that would have sucked all the air out of the room. Like it's hard to focus on the trials and tribulations and the stresses and anxieties of these white characters when there's a black guy bound and gagged in a courtroom for several days, like during that courtroom proceeding. It's like when I told you the story about how I was approached by a Jewish professor to take a, a Jewish American literature course when I was an undergrad. And I asked her, asked her, why did she want me to take the course? And she said, so uh, my Jewish students wouldn't complain so much. Do you know what I mean? I, I, like, if he's there, then everybody else's things seem trivial. Like, whatever's going on in that courtroom are kind of overshadowed by the tragedy that's happening to this man. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and the actual violence of that of that moment is not captured. No, you know, deeply in the film. I mean, that's profoundly violence. You know, a violent act by the state that isn't really um, showcased.
1: No, and apparently also the prosecutor, played by Jorison Gordon-Lovett in the film, was not sympathetic in any way, shape or form, but made him so. Which it's like that type of personalization Hollywood has always been guilty of. Do you have any hopes of what movie you would like to see win, Dr. Phillips?
2: I mean, I, I hope all of them win. I'm always rooting for the Black people. <laughs> just like E.T. <Easter laughs> race, said, you know. And so I really do hope all of them um, get an award. I'm just troubled with the kinds of images that get awarded, that they choose to celebrate. But I do indeed hope everybody Black that's nominated wins.
1: Well, folks, I think we did it. Dr. Phillips, it has been great having you on if there's ever a, a movie you come across that you would uh want to cover again with us we would you know love having you on
0: again all
2: right well thank you for having me this was a wonderful conversation
0: uh, thank you thank you for coming on again you can drop us a line at NJ at racetraderpodcast.com check the spelling in the show notes make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on apple Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you get your podcast
1: all right folks To be or not to be? That's the motherfucking question. Stay curious. Love you, Tayo.